What exactly is the prosperity gospel? I know that's a little bit small, but Time Magazine did an article back in uh, 2008, I believe it was, in September, that asked this very question. 2006, I'm sorry. What exactly is the prosperity gospel? And on the headline it says, or on the front page, does God want you to be rich? And I believe that's a Rolls Royce with a little cross on it. <clears throat> and then some of the books up here, your best life now. And this talks about miracles and healings and uh, special service taking place in Jerusalem. And you can request your own prayer cloth to be sent to you. I guess that's where the power lies. Another book, Eight Steps to Create the Life That You Want. Now, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. This is just what Time Magazine had reported. But what exactly do you believe is this prosperity gospel, and do you believe in it? You know, if you go to, to Google, they will define it this way. It's a religious belief among Christians that financial blessings and physical well-being is always the will of God for them. And as a result of this gospel, faith, positive speech, and donations will increase. It is also known as the health and wealth gospel or the gospel of success. Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of very wealthy, not just a little wealthy, really wealthy people in Scripture, right? Abraham was very wealthy. Job was very wealthy, and there were others. So I don't believe that wealth is necessarily the problem. But when we follow God, when we choose to trust in Him and to follow Him, is this a guarantee that I'll be rich and wealthy and healthy and, and nothing will ever go wrong in my life? I would suggest, friends, that following Jesus by no means is an easy life. That's why He told His disciples Oh, here's another slide. I forgot about this one. Prosperity gospel. Why wait for heaven to get your mansion? Get it now. <laughs> but what did Jesus tell his disciples in John 16, 33? In me, ye might have peace. But in the world, ye shall have tribulation. doesn't say ye might have. It's possible. If you don't do everything just right, if you don't believe enough, it says you will have peace. Tribulation or trouble or trials, it's going to happen. It's part of life. In me you will have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And that's good news. We're continuing our series this week on week number three on sacrifice. Uh, we've looked at the character of sacrifice as Abraham was asked to offer up his only son, Isaac, the thing that he valued and treasured most. He's, God says, you need to give it up. It was a big test. So that was the character of sacrifice. Last week was the sacrifice of relationships. Sometimes family, friends, those closest to you don't understand, they don't agree with where you are spiritually. They don't believe the same way you do. And they might mock you, they might ridicule you. And so we looked at that last week. And this week we're going to look at physical sacrifice. And I know this congregation knows all about what it means to suffer in a physical sense. In a couple of weeks we'll look at sacrifice of the son and a few others, um, pride and, and self-reliance 
how sacrifice is required and the sacrifice for the gospel. But I wanted to put this text on the screen, Mark 8, 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. This is kind of our theme verse, except this one's taken from Mark. Last time it was from Luke. This one's a little bit different, but same idea. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Is this just speaking metaphorically? Or could this, in fact, be speaking about physically as well? Losing my physical life might be required. But if I give it up for Christ and for the sake of the gospel, am I really giving anything up? That's what this verse is asking me to to think about. If you brought your Bibles, I invite invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16, and we're going to look at a story there. That's a very interesting story. It's a story that challenges me considerably. It's a well-known story. I'm sure you've heard of it before. Acts chapter 16. And we're going to begin in verse 16. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. So Acts chapter 16, verse 16, and there we read, Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So we have a slave of the devil, a slave of man as well, and the devil and this man are exploiting this girl for financial gain. And they're approached by this girl. Verse 17, the girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. Now this word annoyed really can also be translated as greatly distressed. If you have a King James Version, it says being grieved. American Standard says being sorely troubled. But Paul is annoyed or grieved because this is hindering the Lord's work, what she's doing. And she's constantly following them and badgering them and hindering their ministry. And so in the name and the power of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of power in that name. Jesus, in fact, had given himself, had given his disciples authority to cast out demons. And so in the name of Jesus in ways that the disciples and others had done before, he asked the Spirit to leave this girl. And what happens? Verse 19. And at verse 18, it says, and it came out of her that very hour. Verse 19. And when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. You see, the marketplace was the center of just about everything, not just social, not just business. It also was where they administered justice. And so they dragged Paul and Silas to the marketplace, and then in verse 20, and they brought them to the magistrates, 
Those are civic commanders or governors. Usually there was two of them, and they had the power to inflict punishment on offenders. And so they dragged them to the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. These Christians over here, they're the problem. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. You see, Jews could practice, but they couldn't proselytize. That means they couldn't evangelize. They couldn't try to convert anybody. And so what they're doing, this is against the law. They're troubling us with their beliefs. And they're causing a ruckus in the entire town. Verse 22. Then the, mad, the multitude rose up together against them. So here you have this big crowd mentality now. It's not just a few, but a multitude rose up against them, and the magistrates tore off their, Paul and Silas' clothes, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, does that sound pleasant? They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them uh, securely. And then verse 24, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now later in the story, Paul objects. How could you do this to any Roman citizen? Some people ask, how come he doesn't object here? People weigh in differently, but my assumption here is that the multitude is so upset, so angry, you don't try and rationalize with the multitude or an angry crowd. And you might try, but you won't get very far. And so they free a girl from demon possession. The people get upset, take them to the judge. There's a mob mentality. They're stripped of their clothing and their dignity. They are beaten with rods to the point that they are bruised, their skin is broken open, they're bleeding, and now they're dragged over to the prison and put not just in prison, but in the inner prison. There's a difference. You see, the outer prison might have had a window, might have had fresh air, might have had the ability to, to get some sunlight. But the inner prison, that was solitary confinement. That might have been extra small on purpose. Not tall enough that you could stand up if you even had that privilege. No windows, no fresh air. Rather, it was dark and damp, and the air would have been foul. And they were put in chains and stocks, which were a form of torture. They wouldn't just casually put your feet in stocks so you had to sit down the whole time. They might twist or contort your body in a certain way that was uncomfortable and then put you in stocks and chains so you couldn't relieve yourself from the discomfort. It wouldn't even have to be that bad. Even while you've been sitting here, you've adjusted, you've shifted because you've become uncomfortable in these pews. Their wounds were not dressed, but rather were exposed. And you know, we tend to sugarcoat and sanitize everything, but I believe in the inner prison, it would have been filled with flies and vermin that could nibble on Any human that just happened to be chained up and could not move. There probably was human waste on the floor. Often the floors would be at a slant to make it more uncomfortable and also for the human waste to eventually drain down to a trough and out. This is not a rosy situation by any means. 
And the rocks on purpose were probably sharp, again, to add a level of torture to this situation. And this is where Paul and Silas find themselves in the inner prison. Is there anyone here this morning that feels like you're in the inner prison? You were doing the right thing. You gave up the perfect job because of that Sabbath issue. You were returning a faithful tithe. You were living a selfless life. You were seeking to help others. But then you were singled out. You were maligned. You were falsely accused. You were beaten up. You were thrown into the torturous and foul inner prison. And this is your life. You've hit rock bottom. I was listening to a speaker recently, and I shared this at prayer meeting. Some of you may have heard me talk about this already, but his ministry was thriving. People were coming to know the Lord. He was volunteering some time each week in the community. Everything was on the up and up. And then there was a financial crisis that was beyond his control. And just like that, everything turned around and went south. He was fearful that his whole ministry would be over and done and finished. And he was depressed. He was angry with God. He said, how could you let this happen to me? I was serving you. People's lives were being changed. I was returning a faithful tithe and offering. I was following your word. I was out in the community. Why, God? Why did you let this happen? And he says in his testimony, he says, I didn't preach the prosperity gospel. I didn't believe in it. Or so I thought. One day, he says, in my depression, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. He says, I believe that because I was doing all the right things, that I would be exempt from certain things. That tragedy, that cancer, that financial loss, that God wouldn't allow it to happen as long as I was faithful to him. And he says, and I realized that was a form of prosperity gospel. I think if we are all honest with ourselves, we've had a similar mindset at times, have we not? We all have believed at one time or another in a prosperity gospel. Now don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It is true when I follow God and his law, I can avoid all kinds of pitfalls and heartache and disaster. And there are certainly rich blessings we receive by humbly submitting to God and his word. It's true that if I don't drink, smoke, or do drugs, I can have greater blessings in my life as far as my health. God will bless me greater. It is true that if I don't commit adultery, God can bless my marriage. That's why we call them the happiness rules, right? Because obedience allows us to receive a richer and fuller blessing. And I believe that to be completely and fully true. But the gospel is not a free ticket out of suffering. It's not. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for those of you that play Monopoly. If it were, 
I would submit to you that the most selfish people on earth would be Christian. Why not? This is the big life. Give it to God and everything will prosper. You'll never get sick again. I know for our family, this idea was challenged when we first got here. First week on the job. Five years ago this past August. And I got word that there was a young girl, Stella Wilkie, up in the hospital at Mission. Why don't you go visit her? So I did. I met the Wilkie family, Bryce and Kathy. I asked if I could share this again, and they bravely said I could. And all of us as a church experienced that if you were here five years ago. We all prayed for Stella. We all loved Stella. We all loved this family. And we rallied around them, and very quickly, she was taken from us. And she died at such a young age. And that tends to leave all of us with questions, doesn't it? What does this say about God and his love? His plan, his decision to do nothing. And so I remember during the the weeks and months that followed, the Wilkies and Elizabeth and I, we were listening to sermons and texting one another often, and, and you all were probably doing much of the same, trying to make sense of this. And it was during that time that the Lord showed me various things in Scripture. One I've shared with you on many occasions, Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. I, I saw it in a new way. I actually heard a preacher preach on it, but I'd never seen it this way before. You know, the faith chapter, it goes through all the different characters in Scripture and then because they had faith and so on. And it was pointed out to me that Abel had faith and he died. First one mentioned. Enoch, the next one mentioned, has faith and he lives, never sees death. Polar opposites, are they not? Noah has faith and he stays. Abraham has faith and he goes to a land. He doesn't even know where he's going. Sarah has faith and receives a child. Abraham has faith and is asked to offer up a child. Joseph has faith and God sends him into Egypt to become rich. Moses has faith and God takes him out of his rich situation and he becomes poor. All of these things are polar opposites and it's the faith chapter. So if I have faith, which is it going to be, rich or poor? Life or death? To leave or to stay? And then it even says in verse 34, that the people that have faith escape the edge of the sword. And then in verse 37 it says, we're slain with the sword. And so all of this helped me to process and to see that faith has nothing to do with what happens around you, but what's happening inside of you. Faith is trusting a friend, well-known, that leads me to do whatever he asks, regardless of the consequences. Living or dying is not the issue. Glorifying God, that's the issue, period. But that's a million miles away from the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. I stopped praying, Lord, if it's your will to heal, because it was shown to me that it's always God's will to heal. I just don't know the timing. It might be instantly. It might be gradually. It may not be till resurrection morning. And so now I pray, Lord, if it's for your glory, because it's not about me. If it's for your glory, I know you can do it. I listened to a sermon by Mark Finley entitled Living with Uncertainty. You can still listen to it on audio verse. He preached it back in 
uh, July of 2013. And he tells a story where he was bending over in the car to get something, and he cracks a rib, and a few days later he does something else and cracks another rib, and everybody says, what's going on? You're so healthy. And so he started getting di- you know, all these tests and all the rest. Finally, he's diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And he starts to read things online, and, and uh, it doesn't look good. The outcomes don't look good for that. And as he was going through all of this process, one day as he was getting some treatment, the doctor came out and he says, you confuse me, Mark. He says, oh, why is that? He says, well, to technically say that you have multiple myeloma, you have to have 10% of these cells in your body. He says, you're right on the line, and you've been staying on the line, and I don't understand. So technically, I can't say that you have it. And I don't know what to tell you because I don't know what your future holds. He says, it could develop very quickly, and within a few months, you could be gone, or you could live and die of something else. I said, wow. So he's constantly living his life to a level of uncertainty. That just happened to be, I say that tongue-in-cheek, 2013, that was the time they were doing this NY13, which was a huge evangelistic effort up in New York City. According to Mark Finley, he said it was the biggest effort we've ever done in North America. Incredible. I believe he was being attacked. But anyway, and in that sermon, Living with Uncertainty, he pointed this out. And if you ever hear a sermon of mine that you like, just ask me where I got it. I just grab them from wherever. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I've shared this and preached this before as well. 2 Corinthians, and then we'll come back to Acts. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And that's where we read, and lest I should be exalted, this is Paul speaking, above measure by the abundance of the revelations, unless I could become prideful and think it's all about me, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. And this idea, when I preach this, the thorn is not just some little thing you get when you're gardening, but it's actually being impaled by a spear to the ground. It's a torture device. You're writhing in pain and asking for people to just do you in because this is torture. It's scaloops is the word. So a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. Who did it come from? The devil, to buffet me or slap me in the face, lest I be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I'm sick of this. I hate it. I don't want it. Take it away. And in that sermon, we look, what is this thorn in the flesh? What could it possibly be? I believe that it was his eyesight, because in various places he says, look, I I signed this with my own hand. Look at the large letters for which I've written to you. But why would that be a scaloops? I believe it could be because his eyesight was so poor that he couldn't see clearly, and he had migraine headaches, which can be violent. They can be debilitating. And he says, Lord, this is hindering my ministry. Take it away. And three times he pleads, take it away. Does anybody else in Scripture plead three times to have it taken away? Sounds like Jesus in the garden. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in what? In weakness. And so Paul finally comes to the conclusion, therefore most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That word rest is really dwell and you can connect it back to the Shekinah glory in the sanctuary. So in my infirmities, in my trial, in my heartache, the Shekinah glory is going to dwell upon me. I'm going to be able to witness in ways I never could before. 
a picture's worth a thousand words. And so I'm going to boast in my infirmities. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distress. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. And so the Lord kept giving all of these various things, and we kept gathering them and collecting them, and he was working on me, I can tell you that. Somewhere in the middle of all that, we were praying about number four. Now, when Elizabeth and I dated, it was kind of a perplexing thing. We started having these walks. We were just getting to know each other. It was just a random question. It wasn't a deep question. It wasn't, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life with you question. It was just a random question. How many kids do you think you might like to have? Well, I want four. Really? I would like four, too. That's all nice in theory when you're in college. But when you already have three, and you're already shopping for three, and it's time for number four, do we want to have number four? Yeah, I think. Well, let's pray about it again. So we'd pray about it again. Yeah, I think, I think the Lord's telling us that we should have four. Yeah, I think so too. And then a few more weeks would go by, and Elizabeth would say, let's pray about that again. And we went through that for a while until we were both very clear and very certain that God wanted us to have four. So fast forward now. James has been born. And it's now 2014. He was born in the summer of 13. And this was a marked year, if I can say that, for the Wilson family. Early that year, Elizabeth's oldest sister, or older sister, Emily, her son Edward, started exhibiting some neurological problems. He'd have tremors and weakness and erratic eye movements. It was later discovered he had a tumor in his left shoulder. And I'm trying to remember how old Edward was at this time. Two, three, two, one and a half even. So they went through the process. They took out the tumor. Okay, everything's going to be back to normal. We're going to be okay. But he was left with OMS. Opscolonis myculonis, is that right? Syndrome, we'll just say OMS, in which Edward's immune system is constantly trying to attack his brain with the antibodies developed to fight the cancer. And so the medical community says for the rest of his life, he's going to struggle with this thing of his immune system trying to attack the healthy cells. And so he goes in for treatments and all the rest. So that took place in... February and following. Then in April of that year, we had a bunch of family over to our house. And a lot of young kids were running around. And after everybody went home, I was just thinking, you know, it's kind of strange. James just seems behind for his age. I mean, nobody's exactly his age, but for families the size of Elizabeth's family and my family, there's one for just about every year of the calendar. And so we started looking for his age. Where should he be? And sure enough, he was not just a little behind, he was really behind. And so that started the whole ring of tests of blood work and EEGs and genetic testing and MRIs. And then in May, we got a phone call. They called Elizabeth. And they said, this isn't a diagnosis, so don't panic. But it's looking like Alexander disease. But don't go to the Internet and look it up. It's not pretty. Who's going to tell you that you have something and then tell you not to go figure out what it is? 
But what does this mean? This isn't a diagnosis. Well, we don't know for sure. It's an unknown variant that we haven't seen before, but everything seems to look like. And Well, then, does he have it or doesn't he? Well, yeah, blah, 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 blah. It wasn't until later that year that we went to Mayo and confirmed, yes, that's what he has. At that point, I don't know if you remember, James was 15 months old, weighed 16 pounds, and for a period of time, I don't know if you're familiar, when you go to the pediatrician now, they'll tell you your child is in the 80th percentile for this and the 60th percentile for that, and all of that, the whole point is just to make parents worry. And <clears throat> James wasn't even for his weight on the list. He was off the chart. Then in September 25 of that year, Elizabeth's younger sister, Catherine, just rather quickly, things went wrong with her pregnancy, and she delivered their third child, Louis, as a stillborn. Now, my father-in-law works for the church, and I can't help but think that the devil was attacking. Within seven months, in birth order, each of the three sisters or three daughters, however you want to look at it, experienced an assault on their youngest son. In fact, just the summer before, the entire Wilson family were together. Two cars were supposed to meet at the airport. There was only one. We didn't have far to go. We were in a quiet third world country. We put all the luggage on the roof, and we were just going to kind of limp along to our destination. We weren't two minutes down the road. We had a head-on collision with the whole family in the car. Everybody walked away unscathed. By 2014, the devil had new attacks. But friends, by God's grace, we are learning lessons of sacrifice. And it's not just us. It's all of you. We collectively are learning painful lessons of sacrifice. It's not prosperity gospel. As God, I believe he is exposing our pride and our selfishness and our self-sufficiency, our lack of commitment. And I believe God is trying to show us that when we are weak, we are in fact strong. For God's strength is in fact made perfect in weakness. Where we can say like Job, though they may slay me, yet I will trust him with tears rolling down our faces. And that's incredible. That's a miracle of God. Only by God's grace But it's in those challenges, I believe, that God grows us to get us past our deep-seated opinions, to bring us to a deeper level of surrender, because he wants to see, do you really trust me? Friends, if we are living in the times we keep talking about, it's not business as usual, and we need to know for ourselves, do we really trust him? Are we playing games? Is this for real? Or are we just putting on airs? And I know many here. And I know many that I have, I'm completely unaware of. You're in a dungeon situation, friends. You're questioning God. You're wondering why he's so silent. You are confused at the way things are going. But don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give in. Just keep hanging on to his hand by faith. So we need to get back to this story. We left Paul and Silas in a terrible situation, and then we just left. 
let's go back to Exodus 16, verse 23. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them in prison and the commander of the jail to keep them securely, having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And then verse 25, but at midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Did you hear that? By all human standards, Paul and Silas had every reason to gripe, and we wouldn't blame them for it. They were serving God. They were faithful to him. They were bleeding. They were beat up. They were bruised. They were suffering in the inner prison, yet rather complain. What did they do? They're praying, what does the text say? And singing hymns to God. This is incredible. Who does this? Well, you know, they've shut the door. We don't have to witness to anybody now, Silas. This is a real bummer, dude. We're in bad shape. That's not what they do. They're singing, they're rejoicing, they're praising God in the midst of their crisis. It reminds me of Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. I think I have it there. Can you rejoice that you are worthy to suffer for Christ's name, for Christ's glory? Wow. Another verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 15. And I will gladly be spent. Sorry. And I will be gladly, I'm going to read it up here. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What does that mean to be spent? Used up, consumed for your souls. Because your souls are more important than my physical anything. Wow. And so at midnight, God delivers his people. You remember Passover and the Exodus? God's people, if you recall, were delivered when? At midnight. Remember the parable of the ten virgins? The bridegroom comes. Jesus is going to come. And when is he going to come? At midnight to deliver his people. So here at midnight, something happens. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the fountains of the prison were shaking and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Acts the Apostle says this. I want to read this to you. All heaven was interested in the men who were suffering for Christ's sake. Pause right there. We are before men and angels, friends. This is called the great controversy, and the earth is the theater. This is the stage. And all heaven was interested in the men who were suffering for Christ's sake. They're doing something incredible down here. They're praying and they're singing in the midst of this. I don't even want to get too close. It stinks too bad. And so they're like this. But all heaven is interested. This is incredible. This has to be God because I've seen too many humans for this to be anything else. All heavens interested in the men who are suffering for Christ's sake. And angels were sent to visit the prison. And at their tread, the earth trembled. They are witnessing in such a powerful way. Can you imagine being a prisoner somewhere on the outskirts? What's that sound? It sounds like singing. What are they singing? Great is thy faithfulness? What? This is unheard of. 
and the earth shakes. Verse 27, and the keeper of the prison, awaking from his sleep, seeing the prison door open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword as he was about to kill himself. Why be dishonored for letting everybody loose and everybody free that was in my charge? I'm just going to end it right now. But Paul said with a loud voice, saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Why would they not all run out? I believe because Paul and Silas in that moment, they were the leaders of the whole prison. They were keeping calm in the midst of the worst circumstance, and they're still there, so we're going to stay too. I don't know. So he says, stay calm. We're all still here. Then he called for a light and ran in, verse 29, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. This has been having an impact on him. You talk about witness. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. They had a Bible study and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. He's already being changed by the gospel, friends. He washes their stripes and immediately he and his family were baptized. And now when he brought them into his house, who takes prisoners into their house? He set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Here God uses the suffering and physical sacrifice of Paul and Silas to bring conviction to a heathen jailer. How else would you do that? And he's responded by the crisis. It makes all the difference. How they respond to the crisis makes all the difference. They were praying, they were singing. And as a result, a direct result, this jailer and his family are baptized. This story challenges me. The Lord is teaching me in our trials of this life, and I know you have them too, that we need to pray and that we need to rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. When we're faced with trials, we need to sing. It's counterintuitive, I know, but we need to sing. Well, what do you sing? Well, sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions, bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, who cares? And we'll shout the victory. Now the challenge is ongoing. Just this week, Wednesday night, we rushed James to the ER at Mission. He was, we were fearing he was having a stroke. He kept falling and it got with more frequency over the last 24 hours. And he'd had some bad falls and hit his head several times. And so he went down to Mission to get a CT scan and they said, yeah, we, we should scan him, and so they did. And we were grateful that he didn't have any blood on the brain and everything was fine, and they sent us home. That was good. A little bit of a traumatic ordeal, but we got through it. Then the next day, we already had appointments lined up to see his pediatric neurologist, and he seems to think, and we still have to go through another EEG on Tuesday and then try and confirm this hypothesis, but from what we've read, it sounds like it makes sense that he's having myclonic seizures, which is where he kind of just, it's almost as if somebody just resets him just that fast. 
And so he kind of throws his hands back, he might throw his head back, and if he's standing, he might fall back. And that's where he might knock his head or something else. Uh, if he's sitting in his chair, he might just knock the back of his high chair or whatever it is. So he's lost a lot of that independence that we used to give him because we don't know where he's going to fall and what he's going to hit on the way down. So yesterday, I guess on Thursday, we got him a helmet, a climbing helmet, to play it again sports. Um, and so when we're not able to hover around him, we try and put that helmet on him, and we all have our bike helmets on too. Try and make this cool, right? But I know many here are going through much greater challenges than we're going through. I mean, everyone has their stuff. Everyone has their own challenge. Everybody has their own difficulty. Everybody has their own pain. But whoever said following God would be easy? I've had several ugly cries this week. It's not easy to watch your child suffer and go backwards from what took him so long to achieve. And maybe this will be a passing thing. I don't know. It's not easy. It's hard. And you've had things this week too. You've had a rough week, a rough month, a rough couple of years, longer, I don't know. And everyone has their own trials to bear. Everyone has their own suffering. And everyone's pain is valid. Sometimes people come to me and they say, well, it's this thing, but I know it's not. No, it doesn't matter. It's not about comparing. It's pain for you. It's real. It's valid. I mean, I know there's people suffering worse than me. Does that mean my pain isn't valid? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Suffering is suffering. But whoever said following God would be easy? Was it easy for Abel when his brother killed him in cold blood? Was it easy for Abraham when he was asked to give up his son? Was it easy for Joseph when he was sold as a slave? Was it easy for Moses when the children of Israel tried to stone him twice? Was it easy for David when he was hunted by Saul? How about the three Hebrews that were thrown to the furnace? How about Daniel thrown to the lion's den? Or when Stephen was stoned, was that easy? It was easy for the disciples, all of which died a martyr's death. Was it easy for Paul when he received 39 stripes, beaten by rod, stoned, shipwrecked, perils of the wilderness and the sea and hunger and thirst and cold and nakedness? Was that easy? No, following God is not easy. Going through the trials of this world is not easy. But I'll tell you one thing, it's a thousand times better to go through trials with God than without Him. It's a thousand times better to have hope in a better day coming than to think this world is it. And it's a thousand times better knowing God will win in the end, period. And despite what we're going through, when we are in a dungeon, but we're heard singing it tells the world, I still trust Jesus. He is my rock. He is my confidence and my assurance and my peace and my hope. That's what it means to sing. And in my physical suffering and sacrifice and in your physical suffering and sacrifice, if we can be found singing, if we can impact a life, if we can turn a stony heart to Christ by God's grace, if we can win some boy, some girl, some man, some woman, some family, I think it'll be all worth it. It may not feel like it now, but I believe someday it will be.
I mean, what's the value of a human soul for all eternity? What's the value of that? I don't know. But I know that it's worth more than the temporary life on this earth. It is. And if through my suffering Christ can be glorified, so be it. If I can be spent for the souls of others, so be it. Lord, if I can be counted worthy to suffer for your name's sake, so be it. But in the process, I don't want to grieve like the world grieves. I don't want to be angry like the world gets angry. I don't want to go through pity parties like the world does. I don't want to be discouraged. I don't want to be disheartened. I don't want to lose my focus or my sense of purpose or mission. But rather, by God's grace, I want to be a witness to heaven and to earth of the power of the gospel to change a life. By God's grace, I want to be exhibit A of how a Christian responds in the midst of difficult circumstances. By God's grace, I want to be able to use, I want him to be able to use me and my circumstances to shake up this world, to cause an earthquake and bring men and women to Jesus Christ for eternity. By God's grace, I choose to sing. How about you? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us by your grace to sing for you each and every day, despite whatever circumstance, despite whatever the devil throws at us. May we seek to trust in you and you alone and sing through those trials that you may be glorified and that people may be drawn to you. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.